Let's stand up. We need a little stretch. Take a deep breath in. Look away and breathe out. Okay. Let's, let's have a word of prayer. Stay standing. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you have been pleased with us this morning. And that to the best of our ability, we are trying to express to you our love for Christ. We will spend eternity showing and singing and proclaiming our appreciation for his death and his resurrection. And it still will not be long enough to give him the praise that he deserves. So, Father, now as we open the word, may our hearts be like the hearts of those two men who were on the road to the village of Emmaus a few days after the resurrection and the Lord appeared and walked with them and was teaching them about himself out of the Old Testament scriptures. And then when he disappeared, they said, when he was speaking to us, was not our heart burning within us? Father, may our hearts burn within us for you and for your word and for our Christ and for holiness and for a testimony that shines brightly in a dark world. So, Father, we pray that as we continue to worship you, as we continue to observe the certainty of the resurrection, uh, that you would instruct us, uh, that your spirit would open our hearts and equip us with proper thinking, uh, that you would clean out our minds and our hearts from improper thoughts of you, which then lead to improper living. Uh, teach us, uh, Father, and instruct us and guide us. Uh, may we always have the ultimate priority of life in the forefront of our minds. And that is that all things may be from him and through him and to him and for him. Uh, that he may be all in all. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, ushers, I know there's some outline in the back. If the ushers could bring that in case some of you didn't get that. Uh, as we look at the word this morning. The Gospels, when we put them all together, and it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and I'll just be honest, I cheated. Uh, I have awesome Bible software. In fact, I have two different Bible software systems on my laptop. I have Logos and I have BibleSoft, you know, and I can just... Type in anything uh, and every resource on planet Earth <laughs> in, the, in that software. So uh, putting together what happened that morning, uh, Rob and those guys out there, if you could uh, bring in any outlines that are left so folks could have them. If we put it all together and I just want you to listen to the account. Uh, thank you, Sebastian. They're asleep at the wheel out there. Just listen and try to picture yourself in the hold up your hands. Here's outlines if you need it. Picture yourself there that morning uh, and realize that uh, preaching is the proclamation of certainties. It's not the suggestion of possibilities. Uh, we believe that the resurrection of Christ is a certainty. It's a historical fact. 
though many will undermine the scriptures today, uh, which we'll see in a minute. But we put all this together and listen to the account of the Gospels of that first morning. So it was early dawn on Sunday morning and a group of women come to the tomb of Jesus. They want to finish preparing his body for burial because that process for burial had only been started by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, but they hadn't finished it yet because they had taken Jesus' body off the cross at 3 p.m. on Friday and it had to be taken care of before 6 p.m. because the Jewish Sabbath would start. So Joseph and Nicodemus, with some women standing nearby watching, simply laid Jesus in a brand new unused tomb. And the ladies would come back after the Sabbath to finish preparing the body. These women included Mary Magdalene. This is all from the scriptures. Mary, the mother of James. Joseph, Salome, and the scriptures say many other women who had come up with him from Jerusalem. The women come and they find that the stone that was used to close the tomb had been rolled away. Because at some point in the early morning, an angel had descended from heaven, causing a severe earthquake at the tomb. The angel rolls the stone away and sits on top of it. Sometimes we think, well, did Jesus roll the stone away? The scriptures say an angel rolled the stone away and took a seat up on top. Getting comfy. The guards who were at the tomb were terrified So afraid that they almost physically dropped dead and they fled away. So the women encounter two angels, but only one angel speaks. He tells the women, I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here. He is risen just as he said he would. And the angel then invites the women into the tomb to see for themselves And they enter the tomb and they find it empty. Jesus' body is gone, nowhere to be found. And while the women are there at the tomb, inside the tomb, two more angels suddenly appear inside the tomb. And one of the angels speaks to them and reminds them of all of Jesus' promises to them while he was still living. Then the women remember What Jesus had said during his lifetime regarding his suffering, death and resurrection. Then the angel who was doing all the speaking commanded the women to go tell Peter, tell the other ten disciples. And all the others that Jesus had risen from the dead and that he would meet all of them at the place in Galilee that he had designated for them before his death. The scriptures say that the women fled in fear. Trembling, astonishment and joy out of the tomb, immediately doing what they were instructed. So they come and they find the disciples gathered together. And of course, because they were men, they accused the women of speaking nonsense. Because they were stupid men. The scriptures say in Luke twenty four eleven, they thought the women were speaking nonsense. Just pause. Isn't it amazing? As much as Jesus had told them, I will rise again. They they weren't looking for his resurrection. 
They weren't looking for his resurrection. In fact, someone came and said, hey, he's risen from the dead. He's alive. They said, you're nuts. I'm glad we don't do that. When Jesus gives us promises, we always take him at his word, right? We always obey. What was wrong with those apostles? Peter and John take off. John being the youngest of the disciples, we believe. They take off. They decide, okay, maybe it's not nonsense. Even if it is, we've got to go check this out. I'm sure they thought someone took our Lord's body. So those two take off running to see for themselves. John arrives at the tomb. First, the scripture says, I can see Peter like me. <gasps> you know, just, you know, and John's John's just throwing up dust. He's gone because he's young. It's interesting. John gets to the tomb first, but he doesn't enter. Then Peter arrives sidebar, huffing and puffing and enters the tomb first. They see Jesus's burial linens intact and his grave clothes folded neatly. And the Bible says that immediately John believes in the resurrection of the Lord. It says John saw the grave clothes and believed. But neither Peter nor John, the Bible says, yet understood the resurrection in terms of all of Jesus teaching or in terms of their own Old Testament scriptures. They still had not connected the dots. The scriptures say they leave immediately for what? For their own homes. Peter and John leave the empty tomb and they go back to their own house. What were they thinking? What were they feeling? I'm sure they were just so confused. Why were his grave clothes folded neatly and in place? It's proof of the certainty of the event, because if robbers had come and taken the Lord's body, they wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap his clothes because the valuable spices and oils and aloes and all that would have been still with the clothes. And the grave clothes were not ripped in pieces by someone who woke up startled that he was wrapped up and he tore them off. Some people try to undermine the resurrection by saying, well, the Lord simply fainted on the cross. They took him down, they put him in the tomb, and then he woke up. But the clothes weren't torn. They weren't even rumpled. Jesus simply woke up in his glorified body and to demonstrate his supreme control over death, simply sat up passed through the grave clothes, rose, folded the headpiece that was wrapped around his head, set it at the top of the rest of the clothes, and he left the tomb, probably right through the thick stone wall, because his glorified body would no longer be constrained by earthly limits like rocks and stones. The scriptures say an angel descended and rolled the stone away from the tomb, probably to show the world that Jesus was alive. Now, Jesus had clearly foretold his resurrection, but they still hadn't accepted it. The Bible tells us after his resurrection, he met with them and he reviewed and explained his disciples all the Old Testament teachings that pointed to his life, suffering, death and resurrection. But even then, their hearing was still dull, Luke tells us. They still didn't get it. Jesus then supernaturally gave them understanding and they finally understood 
the Bible says, fully what he was saying about himself from the scriptures. Only a true believer in Jesus Christ, permanently indwelled by the Holy Spirit since the moment of his genuine conversion, can accept and understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus gave them understanding, if he does not give us understanding, we cannot accept it. And even then, there's no promise that our understanding will be perfect or infallible, right? It would be nice. So after Peter and John leave the tomb, still no one has seen the resurrected Lord yet. The search is on. Where is the body? Peter and John leave the tomb. They go home. And then Mary Magdalene, who was part of the group that when told the disciples, she returns to the tomb, passing Peter and John somewhere, but not seeing each other. She was outside the tomb weeping. The two angels who had been there before appear again. And one of them asks her why she is weeping. Suddenly. And I get goosebumps because I. I would probably have passed out. (laughs) Suddenly, Jesus appears to her. They had witnessed all the crucifixion, all the suffering, all the beating, all the blood, all the wounds, all the shame. And here he is. This is his first appearance to anyone. Why would he appear to a woman first? I smile Riley, not Riley, but Riley with a W. Because we live in an age exploding with gender equality wars. Our Lord's first appearance after his resurrection is to a woman. Why? Because in the Jewish culture of those ancient days, do you realize that a woman's testimony was not even legally accepted in a court of law? So the point is, you can't make this stuff up. Anyone trying to make up a fake story of a resurrected savior wouldn't open with he first appeared to a woman. In that culture at that time, no way. It just proves the certainty. It proves the reality that it really happened. For some reason, she doesn't recognize him at first. I'm sure he looked different than the last time she saw him. Until he says her name. In the scriptures, it's an exclamatory. It has an exclamation point. He says, Mary. Makes me think of John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And then they follow me. Mary then recognizes him. She clings on to him, holding on to him, worshiping him and crying. She doesn't want him to leave again ever. She wants to be with him forever. But he only has 40 days on earth until his ascension back to heaven permanently. And he has a lot to do. And so he tells her not to hold on him. Don't hold me back from everything that I have to accomplish. That's what's happening there. He says, go tell my brethren. Go tell my brothers. Now, that's interesting. Go tell my brothers that I will be ascending. Dot, dot, dot in 40 days. 
brother, brethren, brothers. This is the first time Jesus ever called his disciples brothers. He'd called them friends. He had called them slaves. They had never heard them, heard him address them with a title of equality like brother. But his death on the cross in place of their sin enabled this new relationship. He's their savior. He's their God. He is now their brother. After Jesus leaves Mary Magdalene, he then appears. Well, probably going to appear to a man now, right? Oh, no. He appears to that group of women who were there earlier at the tomb with Mary Magdalene. And they went and told the disciples, well, Mary Magdalene left that group and came back to the tomb. That group of women, they were walking home or going somewhere. Jesus appears to them. Secondly, and they fall down and they begin to worship him as well, holding on to him, grabbing him, worshiping him. And the scriptures say they were very afraid. He tells them the same thing. Go and alert my brethren to meet me at the designated spot in Galilee. Then two of disciples, they're not part of the 11 that we know. They are only one of them is named. His name is Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other one. They're walking from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. It's a seven mile walk. As the crow flies. If you were born and raised in western Pennsylvania, you know what that means. Well, a very long journey because of all the hills and the ups and downs. Seven miles they are walking along. Jesus appears to them. They don't know who he is. He says, what are you talking about? And they're like, dude, where have you been the last three days? But it's in Hebrew. I don't I don't or Greek or sorry. I, I don't know what the Greek for dude is, but. But it says. He says, what are you talking about? Like, where, where have you been the last three days? Don't you know what's been going on? This Jesus and we're believers of his, we're disciples of his. We really thought he was going to usher in the kingdom. And they begin to tell him everything that happened. Well, then Jesus begins to teach them from all the Old Testament scriptures about him and about his death and about his resurrection. They come to their home and they urge him to come inside. So he comes inside and he breaks some bread and he gives thanks. And then the scriptures say that he opened their eyes and they could see who he really was, but that he vanished immediately from their sight. It says they got up immediately and they rushed back to Jerusalem seven miles and they report to the eleven and to the others what they had seen. Christ's resurrection body was real. It was tangible. The women held on to it. Thomas touched his crucifixion wounds. Jesus ate a meal. He ate some fish. He told his disciples, look, I have flesh and bones. He said, I'm not a ghost. All the disciples then gathered around and touched him. Can can you picture it? He shows up in Luke 24. They're freaked out. It's a ghost. He says, I'm not a ghost. Does a ghost have flesh and bones? Touch me, he said. Can you picture them? Is this real? It says they, they touched his wounds. It would be hard to believe, right? His resurrection body, though, had also possessed certain mysteriously altered glorified properties. He was able to pass through solid objects like locked doors, stone walls, 
his grave clothes. He could travel great distances in mere seconds. Yet he was recognizable. He still had his crucifixion wounds. He was not a mere ghost or a phantom. Luke 24 and 1 Corinthians 15 also report that at some point Jesus appeared to Peter when Peter was all alone by himself. We need to cue the music. Dun, dun, dun. Why would he want to speak to Peter by himself? Ooh. Well, the last time they saw each other, there was some crowing going on. Right? Last time they saw each other, Peter had denied the Lord three times. So on top of everything else, Peter was dealing with all that. And I really think, too, Peter was the leader of the of the pack, leader of the pack. And so the Lord probably had some special instructions for him. But I think the record is silent about the details of that conversation because God is gracious. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful God doesn't air my dirty laundry out. For all of you, we come in here in the morning, we're going to roll the screen each of our lives the whole week. Public record. How many are in favor of that show of hands? Bunch of cowards. Okay. Me too. The scriptures tell us that for 40 days, Jesus taught and encouraged and ministered to his followers in bodily form. Acts chapter 1. We know Jesus appeared to ten disciples. Thomas wasn't there. They were terrified and skeptical, but he challenged them that he was not a ghost to go ahead and touch him. And then he appears again when Thomas is there. Because remember Thomas? He came back. They said, we've seen the Lord. Thomas said, fat chance. Unless I touch the wounds myself. Unless I touch his fingers where the nails were. Unless I can put my hand right there on the side where they put that spear in there. I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus shows up. Thomas is probably eating a big serving of humble pie. Because Jesus commanded him to touch him. And then what did Jesus say? You know, Jesus addressed you and me. He said, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe in me, but have never seen me. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says that Jesus then appeared privately and personally to James, the apostle, and to the other apostles. And this is fascinating. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says that Jesus appeared in his resurrected body to a group of 500 believers who were gathered all together at the same time. Can we get a little bit of church up in here is what that event was like. A worship service of 500 believers all together. Jesus appeared to his disciples in Galilee and he gave them instructions for their future ministry. And then finally, he appears to them uh, at his ascension when he went back up to heaven. And the scriptures, Acts, the opening verses of Acts chapter one, really allude to the fact that Jesus had probably many other appearances. It says basically he did a lot in that 40 days, a lot of teaching, 
a lot of appearances, a lot of uh, speaking and discipling with his believers. So preaching is the proclamation of certainties, not just the suggestion of possibilities. But, you know, not everyone. By the way, those are the blanks on the back of your outline. I'm sorry. His appearances. I'll leave that up there for you. But there are many who do not believe in the reality of resurrection. Or even more deeply, things they don't believe. April 9th, 2017, L.A. Times. Gentleman by the name of Eric Schwitzgable wrote an editorial piece. He's a Gentile. His wife is Jewish. They're part of a Jewish synagogue. Of course, last week we celebrated Passover, which is connected to Easter because the Passover lamb of the Jews in Egypt was symbolic of Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb who shed his blood so that we would not die like the firstborn male in Egypt died. But Mr. Schwitzgable in the L.A. Times, April 9th, said, we can find meaning in an event that didn't really actually happen. Does it Matter if the story of Passover isn't literally true. No, it doesn't matter. He's part of a liberal reformed Jewish synagogue here in L.A. These stories of scripture are myths. And we use these myths to support our cultural values. And the meanings of these myths in scripture have to be revised and updated for the modern audience. The facts don't matter. It's the moral meanings that matter. For instance, why do we have an orange slice on the Seder plate in our liberal reform Judaism? Well, I will tell you, because Dartmouth Jewish Studies professor Susanna Heschel was speaking to a Jewish group at Oberlin College in Ohio. The students had written a story in which a girl asks a rabbi if there is room for lesbians in Judaism. And the rabbi rises in anger, shouting, there's as much room for a lesbian in Judaism as there is for a crust of bread or leaven on the Seder plate. Heschel was inspired by the students, but was reluctant to put anything unkosher, such as leavened bread, on the Seder plate. So she used a tangerine or an orange slice instead. The orange was an act of defiance, a symbol of a new tradition that celebrates gender equality. Mr. Schwitzgable says, from this story about the orange, we learn a central lesson of Reformed Judaism. That myths are cultural inventions built to suit the values of their day, and they should change as our values change. You see what he's saying? The Bible is just a collection of stories. Don't take it so seriously. And by the way, we need to reshape and change and update the Bible stories to fit what's going on in our culture today. To keep them Useful, I guess. In a way, my daughter and I, Gentiles in a Jewish family, are also oranges. A new type of presence in a Jewish congregation. We're welcomed, but unsure if we belong. In belonging to an old religion such as Judaism, we honor values that are no longer entirely ours. We celebrate events that no longer quite make sense to us. 
We can't change the basic tale of Passover, but we can add liberal commentary to better recognize the Egyptian suffering. And we can add a new celebration of equality. We can give new values to the power of our myths. Is do we take the Passover literally? Do we take resurrection literally? They say it doesn't really matter. The facts don't matter. I'm here to tell you that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a fact, then not a person in this room is going to heaven. The facts do matter. That type of thinking is very unstable, (laughs) to say the least. And by the way, for liberal theology today, reconstruction is a key. You don't like what the scriptures say, just change it. They're just myths anyway. There's no such thing as absolute historical unchanging truth. The so-called truth from scripture needs to be reinterpreted to fit our modern culture. Meaning is fluid. However, the Christian worldview, that's us, hopefully, is just a smidge different. That was sarcasm. The events of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as recorded in the Bible are reliable, factual, historical truths which support the entire structure of the Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical certainty, not a possibility. Our resurrection is a certainty, not just a possibility. You know, a recent BBC poll in England found that 25% of professing Christians do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And only 17% of the general public in England believe that the Bible's account of the resurrection is true. And in England, of those who consider themselves religious, and to be religious in England, I guess, means you attend one service per month, don't get any ideas. They attend one service a month. That's religious. And of those, 43 percent do not believe the Bible is true, accurate and factual in all its claims. Hmm. I'm a professing Christian. But almost half don't believe the Bible is accurate. That's the world we live in. A world without certainty, a world without. Truth, without hope. Resurrection is a certainty for believers and you may be surprised to hear this. Resurrection is a certainty for unbelievers. Go to John chapter five. I know some of you are thinking, say what? I thought resurrection was just for those who believed in Jesus. Oh, no. Resurrection is for believers and unbelievers. John chapter five. Starting in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. And he gave him, the son, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. He's one of us. Therefore, he has the credentials to judge us. 
Verse 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all, circle, highlight, underline, who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Every person who has ever died will hear the voice of Christ say, rise from the dead. However, destination TBA. Verse 29, and all will come forth. Those who did the good deeds, that means those who accepted Christ to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds, meaning who rejected Christ to a what? Resurrection of judgment. The human body will be appropriately, supernaturally designed by God to be fitted for eternity in heaven or to be fitted for eternity in hell. Resurrection doesn't mean merely to be put back together. It means to be refashioned in quality and substance to be able to endure. We don't have time to read it, but 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, Paul points out that we were created to always have a body. We, the beings, the way God created us, we don't like not having a body. If we don't have a body, Paul calls it nakedness. Meaning at all times, we were meant to have a body. I personally believe You know, resurrection day is that time when our soul is reunited with our resurrected body. But because we were created to always have a body, I think those that have already died and gone on to heaven have an intermediate body. That houses their soul until they receive their glorified body. Why do you say that? Second Corinthians five, one through five says we were meant to always have a body. The point I'm getting at is resurrection is a certainty. It's about the tangible, the the visible body. It's not some ephemeral, subjective, floating around on clouds, eating angel food cake. Which, if it's not dipped in chocolate, I don't want it anyway. It's not just the soul which is resurrected, but the body and the soul together. They're not meant to be separated It's going to be big changes. Philippians 3, 1 John 3, 2 says it has not yet appeared what we shall be like. But when he appears, that's when the change is going to take place. We're going to be transformed. The body is going to be divinely, uniquely equipped to be able to live forever in heaven or divinely, uniquely equipped to endure hell forever. The unbeliever, too, will be resurrected, but not to a glorified body. Well, what will he get? Look in the mirror. That's what you're getting back and worse. The scriptures say the unbeliever at resurrection gets his old, earthly, defective, broken, vulnerable body back, supernaturally fashioned to be able to endure for eternity the suffering and torment of the lake of fire, never being able to die, but always for eternity, feeling the full impact of inflicted punishment justly deserved. Jesus clearly said, in Matthew twenty five, forty six, that the righteous will go away into eternal life and the unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment. 
You see, the suffering of the wicked is as never ending as the bliss of the righteous. And I hate to burst your bubble, but there is no second chance after death. There is no such thing as annihilation. There is no such thing as universalism, which teaches everyone goes to heaven. Nobody goes to hell. That belief, besides being wicked and unbiblical, it's not even logical or sustainable from any type of form of argument. Romans 9.22 speaks of the human body as being a vessel fitted for destruction, a vessel of wrath fitted for destruction. And destruction does not mean annihilation. When it says that the unbeliever's body will be fitted for destruction for eternity, destruction means ruin, ruin, R-U-I-N. The body will be fitted to endure being ruined for eternity. Mark 9:48 Jesus quotes Isaiah 66:24 describing hell as a place where the worm never dies and where there is unquenchable fire. In other words, the desire for those in hell will be to cease to exist, to escape their torment, but their bodies will be fashioned in such a way that to cease to exist will not be possible, but to feel the full impact of punishment and suffering will be their existence for eternity. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, presents that picture at the end of the thousand year earthly millennial kingdom when all judgment is finalized and all people, all unbelievers go before that great white throne. And their souls will be reunited with their unglorified bodies. Go to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. Resurrection is a certainty for every person. Not merely a possibility. The certainty of resurrection is so because Jesus was raised from the dead. His resurrection guarantees the certainty of our resurrection. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20, kind of synthesizes. I may not read every word, word for word. First Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. What does that mean that Christ is the first fruits from the dead? He was the first. He was the best. He was the preeminent. He had to be the first to receive a glorified body because he is numero uno. Because sometimes you think, Pastor, why do I have to wait till resurrection day to get my glorified body? Because Jesus had to be first. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there's a logical order. There's a plan for resurrection. It's just not some haphazard free for all. So Christ, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for by one man, Adam, death came. But by one man, Jesus Christ also comes the resurrection of the dead and Adam all die. But in Christ, all believers will be made alive, each in his own order. Christ, the first. The second group to get the glorified body, the second group of believers, are those who are alive on the earth at the rapture when Christ appears in the air. Our resurrection is so certain that Paul calls it a present reality. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. It's so certain our glorification our glorified body, even though we don't have it yet. We have it. 
We own it. It's in my ownership. I just haven't put it on yet. I know my wife wishes I would hurry and put it on. Told her I can't. Christ is in charge of the order. Romans 8.30, what does he say? Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. I'm in Romans 8.30. And those he justified, he also what? Past, present tense. What is it? Past tense. Those he justified, he also glorified. Your glorification is already done. It's a done deal. It's secure. It's guaranteed. Well, how do you know that? Look at verse 23. Tells us that that's possible because we have the first fruits of the Spirit within us as believers. As we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the what? The redemption of our bodies are glorified. Yes, Linda, say it again. All right. Our glorified body is already a done deal. It's ours right now. Today, as we live and breathe, it is guaranteed. It's waiting for us to slip into it on Resurrection Day. The Holy Spirit himself guarantees it. You go into the book of Acts and they're proclaiming the resurrection. It's the central feature of what it means to be a Christian. Stephen, the early church Believer was stoned to death because he was preaching the resurrection. Peter and John were thrown into prison because they were preaching the resurrection. The Apostle Paul went before royal authorities and mobs of angry Jews. And he said, because I'm preaching the resurrection. As a certainty, not as a possibility. One of the proofs that it was real is the change that it brought in the life of the early church. They were just crushed and devastated by the crucifixion. And now we see them laying down their lives because they believed that the Lord Jesus was alive. You don't die for something that you think, okay, maybe, maybe not. Are the facts really important? We're going to die for the moral meaning of the resurrection. That doesn't sound very much like human nature, does it? They had a certainty so deeply embedded within the nature of their faith that they didn't care if they died or not because they knew to be absent from the body would just mean to be present with the Lord. They saw many of them. When Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says the Lord appeared to 500 brothers at the same time, then Paul says, most of whom are still living today. So there were hundreds in the early church that had seen Jesus with their own eyes. And they were willing to give their lives for that. We don't give our lives for possibilities. We give our lives for certainties. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a historical, factual event witnessed by hundreds. And it powerfully transformed the life of believers. It became the central feature of spiritual life and the foundational structure of the Christian faith. These are just a handful of verses. These are for you to take home on the back of your outline. Look these up. So what does it mean to me as a Christian in 2017 that Christ rose from the dead? 
Some of these verses like Romans, next slide, Romans 4.25 says, My justification rests on Christ's resurrection. What does that mean? Justification means my right standing before God. If Christ had not risen from the dead, I would not be in good standing with God. It would be impossible. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, because Christ has been raised from the dead, my resurrection is secure. Therefore, I should walk in newness of life. In chapter 7 of Romans says, I should be bearing good fruit for God because I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, I'm so certain of the fact that it totally reorders the way I live my life. I'm certain that Jesus rose from the dead. And now I'm certain that I will be resurrected. That means I'm certain that someday, just as Jesus had a private conversation with Peter, he's going to have a conversation with me. Are you ready for that talk? Are you ready for that talk? Some of you look terrified and I say, Amen. Even for a believer, it's kind of scary, isn't it? Second <laughs> Peter three, verses 10 through 15 says, because all of these things are going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The fact that Jesus rose from the dead snaps me out of my spiritual lethargy. I like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 with me. The letter of 1 Peter. I'm going to ask Carol if you could make your way up to the piano because we're going to have a closing hymn today. The same hymn that you played earlier, Carol. First Peter, chapter one, verse three. Read it carefully. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a what? Living hope. But that living hope comes through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not only do we have hope, we have a living hope. In other words, that resurrection of Christ and then the certainty of my own resurrection creates in me a hope that is active. I don't have a dead hope. I don't have a lazy hope. I don't have an apathetic hope. I have a living hope. It's active. It's doing something. In other words, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 I don't know about you, but as I look around at the world around me, I see a shortage of hope. I see a shortage of hope. We have a living hope. 
Because that tomb was empty. Because that tomb was empty, we have a living hope. Last scripture to close. Go to Colossians chapter 3. If you want revival in your life, if you want to reignite your walk with God, then you must live in the shadow of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The eyes of a living Savior are always on us. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, that means your resurrection was secured when he rose from the dead. It's a done deal. Keep seeking the things where? Above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above Don't set your mind and your hopes and your dreams and your goals and your values and your priorities on things that are of the earth. What a waste of time. Permit me to be bold with you as your pastor. Some of you are wasting your lives. You're pouring your whole heart, soul, mind and strength into things that are just going to float away. Things that don't matter. You call yourselves Christians and you're living a life of colossal waste. It's okay to do sports. It's okay to do music. It's okay to have a nice home. It's not okay to live for those things. It's not okay to sacrifice your life with Christ To have those things. You're straining at gnats and swallowing camels. The scriptures say. Verse 3. For you have what? Your dead meat. But your dead meat walking. Dead man walking. It's a good dead For you have died to yourself, he's saying. You have died to all those earthly things. And now where is your life? Hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul told the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 20, That when Christ appears, he's going to transform our lowly bodies into conformity with his heavenly body. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're getting a new body. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah. What if I said, if you're a believer, your spouse is going to get a new body. Who says amen? Okay. Oh, okay. I was tempting you. It's okay for the wives to say amen, but husbands, don't you dare. Anything that Christ is able to do in his glorified body, you will be able to do. You will not be bound by time and space. You will not be bound by travel restrictions. You will not have to eat. You will not have to drink. You will not have to sleep. You will not age. 
You will not wear glasses. I don't wear mine anyway. I know I'm going to bump into my wife in heaven. She won't be my wife anymore. The scriptures say she'll say, where's your glasses? And I can finally say, I don't need them. I'm in heaven. For the believer. For the believer. If you're here today and you're not a true follower of Christ, whether you've never made that initial confession of faith, or maybe you have and you know you're faking it, you need to know you will be resurrected. You will live forever. But it's beyond the pale of what you can imagine in the worst way. So the resurrection of Christ is a certainty, not a possibility. Your resurrection is a certainty, not a possibility. And we leave here today proclaiming certainties, not suggesting possibilities. And we do not apologize for that to anyone. Because we have living hope for a dying world. Let's take our hymn books or use the screen because he lives. I'm going to ask you if you come up and sing. Otherwise, there's going to be a mass exodus if I start to sing. Because he lived, we want to do verses two and three. That's page three, five, eight. If you want to use your hymn book, I know some of you like to look at the notes. Because he lives should make all the difference in your life, everyone. It should make a difference in your choices, your priorities, your thoughts. Let's do verses two and three. give you an opportunity I don't do it very often I have my reasons but if you're here this morning and you would like to make a profession of faith for the first time in Christ I want to invite you to come down so we can pray for you and encourage you number two if you're here today and you are already a believer in Jesus but you need to make some changes you need to start living more in the shadow and in the light of the resurrection making some changes. I want to give you an opportunity to come forward to. We'll just pray for you here this morning. We'll encourage you. We're not going to pry into all your personal business unless you want me to. So if you're either of those situations, I plead with you. The resurrection is a certainty. It is going to happen. It's not something to play around with. This right here, this very moment is the real meaning of life. Making sure you're right with the Lord. 
So I'm going to give you the opportunity. We're just going to sing this last chorus, and that's it. Father, we thank you for these folks. We pray for them. Uh, Whatever it is that they're struggling with, whatever it is they know they need to change, we pray your Holy Spirit. We pray your scripture. We pray that we as their brothers and sisters would be an encouragement to them. Uh, And I know, dear Father, that many of us, I myself wanted to go down there because we all need to constantly be seeking the things above. Father, all of us in some way, shape, or form are entangled by the things of the world. We're blind to our own weaknesses, our own sins, and we minimize our own sins and we maximize other people's. And We get ensnared in sin and we can't get out and we get embarrassed and ashamed and walking down an aisle in front of a bunch of people is the last thing we're going to do. But Father, we know uh, what our own private thoughts are with you. We pray for your cleansing. We pray for our daily growth. We pray that just in the running back and forth of the everyday things of life, things we have to take care of, things we have to do, that always in our mind would be, this doesn't control me. This doesn't own me. I belong to Christ. I'm Christ. I'm Christ. So help us to live for the right things. Help us to be satisfied by the right things. Help us to be fulfilled by the right things. Please untangle us from the things that keep us from a close walk with you. Thanks for today, Heavenly Father. Anything good that happened here today, all the glory, all the praise goes to Jesus Christ. We take none of it for ourselves. We leave here proclaiming the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Happy Easter. Please come up and encourage these folks to say hi.